You can have your Bibles handy this morning. Uh, once again, we are, we are in a, a period of uh, introduction. Last week, we spent some time talking about biblical interpretation. Laying a foundation for Genesis chapter 15. We've still got a few more weeks on this foundation before we truly dig into Genesis 15. In that I took the time to present that information as it relates to biblical interpretation, I do so with the acknowledgement that the, that the way that, that we interpret the, the Word of God here at Legacy Baptist Church is not the only way that people interpret the Bible. And when it comes to believers who claim to believe the Bible but have a very different opinion about what the Bible says, methods of interpretation are generally the root of that disagreement. There's always going to be a subset of people who uh, say that they're Christians and, and have ideas, but that they don't actually believe the Bible. And if they don't actually believe that the Bible is true, then there's not a whole lot of common ground uh, by which to be able to move forward. But then there are a lot of Christians who do believe that the Bible is true. And yet they're still going to come to many disagreements as it relates to certain aspects of the Word of God. And the reason why we're laying this out now, now that, 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 that was the case as well in Genesis. You have well-meaning people who see a, a day-age theory or, 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 or a God-directed um, God, uh, uh, evolution and those sorts of things. And we, we take the Bible naturally and literally and historically as it relates to Genesis. But when we get to to chapter 15 and, and the nature of Abraham and, and Abraham and this covenant that we'll see that Abraham has with God, um, this is where things really start to diverge and this is why we're spending the time uh, digging into the manner in which uh, we organize the Bible and understand it. So last week we laid a foundation of how it is that we interpret the Bible, our presuppositions or our assumptions that the Bible is a deliberate book, that the Bible is a unified book, that the Bible is an accurate book, that the Bible is a spiritual book. We take those for granted. We don't seek to defend them. We allow the Bible to self-attest to those things and we believe them and then we, we, we interpret in light of them. And that leads us to a manner of interpretation where we are interpreting naturally or uh, as literally as we can within the scope of the, the, the literary context where we uh, interpret grammatically, historically, contextually, and prayerfully in order that we might live out the realities of, of our presuppositions in the manner in which we approach the text. And then we talked about a couple of strategies. Now, over the next two weeks, I'm going to talk about how it is that we see the Bible thematically organized. We recognize that the Bible is a book to reveal God and that the Bible is a book of redemption from beginning to end. And yet there are disagreements in the Christian world as to how the Bible is organized and the manner in which the Bible is reflecting these truths. Sometimes that doesn't really matter. The organizational structures of the Bible, it's like, okay, whatever, fine, organize it how you will as long as we understand that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But there are certain degrees where, as we approach the structure and organization of the Bible, it will inform our fundamental doctrines. And with Genesis chapter 15, some of that is in play. So what I'm doing over the next few weeks is I'm going to then talk about how it is that Legacy Baptist Church believes the Bible is organized and structured. And we're going to approach it in two particular topics or themes. This week we are talking about the kingdom and the nature of how the Bible presents the idea of the kingdom of God. This will come into play very strongly uh, with what Jesus talked about when he came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the nature of the church's relationship to the ideas that Jesus was teaching and that the Old Testament espouses going all the way back to Abraham. 
And then next week we're going to, it'll be, it'll be two weeks, next week and the week after, and we're going to be talking about the idea of the biblical covenants and how it is we relate ourselves to the covenants. And that one is going to be very close to home as it relates to Genesis 15, because in Genesis 15 we see one of those very, very important covenants. And then from there, as we talk about Genesis 15, what we're going to find is that Genesis 15 is often cited in the New Testament. Paul will go to what God did through Abraham many times. And to that end now, we'll have the foundation necessary to understand our perspective on what God is doing. So bear with me for a few more weeks as we lay the foundation and talk about the manner in which we organize our thoughts and and, and we see God organizing both the Bible and to that extent, the history from beginning to end. So last time we were together, I began talking about the broad themes that we have traced through Genesis 1 through 14, properly formatted this time. First and foremost, we trace the history of humanity, creation, the fall, the flood, Babel. This is history, right? We're tracing the history of humanity, how it is that humanity got to the point that we find ourselves in. And that, that's, that's history, right? That's just us orienting ourselves to what has happened in the past. Then we traced a couple of other themes, and we have been tracing other themes. We've traced the theme of redemption. Genesis 3.15, God promising the seed to Eve that there would be the seed of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent. Then we see in the days of Cain and Abel, Abel dying, and Seth being born, and Eve acknowledging that God has provided another seed in the place of Abel whom Cain slew. Then we traced it through Lamech, uh, 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 not, not the seed. We, we traced a lineage through Lamech and then uh, through Seth's line. And as we trace a seed from Cain down to Lamech, we see uh, a, a family legacy of wickedness along that line. And we see a family legacy of righteousness along Seth's line. And then, of course, we trace that through Enoch. And then we trace that unto Noah. And then we trace that through Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and specifically the blessing upon Shem. And then that, of course, tracing us to Abraham and Abraham believing God. Then, of course, we have seen a covenant, the Noahic covenant, where God promised with the sign of the rainbow that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And then we're going to see in Genesis 15 a second covenant that God makes with Abram. And then we also see a theme that I've alluded to some. We're going to talk about it a lot more this morning of the kingdom and particularly the ways that God sought to establish the kingdom and Satan's attempts to undo or to thwart God's kingdom in order that he may set up a kingdom for himself, beginning with God approaching Adam and Eve and making, or excuse me, Satan approaching Adam and Eve and making an offer. That God has said one thing and Satan says, I'm going to make a truth claim of my own. Whose are you going to believe? And Adam, of course, accepted the terms of Satan's kingdom above those of God's kingdom, handing the the authority of creation of the created world to Satan, making him the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. God then promising that seed who would come. We talked about Abel being killed. Thus, the one who would be the seed through whom Messiah would come is killed. He, he is cut off short. And God providing another seed. 
Then humanity falling into apostasy. And we'll, we'll, we'll cover this in more detail today. Each of these things expressing a thematic milestone along the journey of history, but all leading to the same point. The prophetic fulfillment of every theme we find in Scripture through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all pointing to Jesus. Redemption points to Jesus. The covenants point to Jesus. The kingdom points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. We see that Jesus is the point. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the objective. Jesus is the point. What we are tracing is God bringing about the finished work through Jesus. He will finish redemption. He will finish the covenants. He will, he will establish His kingdom through Jesus. And so today, we begin to think through this idea of the kingdom in order to set, set the stage for Genesis 15. And as I mentioned, in relation to God's program with humanity and redemption, we believe that all of, uh, all of history is moving toward a final objective in God's plan. And that final objective is a kingdom. And we'll explain what that means. So really what we're exploring today is a battle. And that battle is between Satan and God. And we'll see humanity's role within that battle and what God has chosen to do and how He has chosen to bring it about through history. So last week we talked in interpretation about the least common denominator principle. And the idea of the least common denominator principle is that when we are interpreting the Word of God we are, and we come to some theme or some doctrine, what we want to look for in order to understand the fundamental roots of any theme or any doctrine is the thing that spans every uh, mention or every uh, occurrence of that theme or every occurrence of that doctrine. And that's very, the, the, we're going to use that method as we think through the idea of the kingdom. When we look at the, the concept of a kingdom in the Word of God, when we look at the, the promises and the prophets of a kingdom that will come, of a king that will come, when we think through what that kingdom looks like as the prophecies give way to reality in the millennial kingdom and such, there are three primary attributes or three primary requirements of the idea of a kingdom. Those three primary attributes are, one, a right to rule, two, a realm over which to rule, and three, the willing exercise of that rulership or of that royal authority. So the right to rule. A person must be vested with the authority and the ability to rule. This may come by right. This may come by force. But if a person does not have, the, if, if, if he is not, if he does not have the right to rule, either by authority or by the fact that he's got, you know, he's got the guns, right? Then he, he doesn't rule. A person can be sitting in his basement saying he's the king. But it doesn't make him the king just because he's sitting in his basement calling himself the king. There has to be some sort of right to rule. Second, you need a realm over which to rule. As a father, I can tell my son that he has authority, but if I don't give him something to have authority over, then, then, then what, is he, what is he doing? He can walk around to everyone saying, my dad gave me authority. My dad says I'm in charge. In charge of what? Oh, well, nothing. Okay, well then you're, you're not really in charge. Unless you're in charge of something, you're not in charge. And then finally, 
you have to be willing to exercise that authority. If I have the right to rule and a kingdom over which to rule, but I don't invest myself in that authority, I don't actually lead, well, then I'm not actually, I don't actually have a kingdom, all right? I'm not actually exercising any sort of kingdom authority. So think with me then about the time when God created the heaven and the earth. We find in this statement two realms. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Two realms. Heaven, a spiritual existence, and the earth, a physical existence. In the beginning, God was king over both heaven and earth. He had the right to rule by virtue of the fact that he is the creator of all things. He has the power. He has exerted the power. He has made a creation. And as one who has made the creation, he has the right to rule. He has those realms over which to rule, over heaven and earth. And, of course, he has exercised that authority over both heaven and earth. But at some point, as we look into the scriptures, something changed. The absolute authority of God was challenged. We do not read about this directly in Genesis, but comparing scripture with scripture, we find that there was a time when one of God's angels, by name of Lucifer, determined that he was going to challenge the right that God had to be the ruler. He wanted to be the ruler himself. We believe that we read of the essence of this day in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, the Bible says this, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which disweaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Notice the character of Lucifer's desires here. He said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven, characteristically the idea of the stars of heaven in the Old Testament uh, being that of the angels. So he says, I will exalt my throne above the angels. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation. That is the place where the Bible says the Lord sits. That's where Jehovah sits. He sits on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. There is a Most High God. And the idea, as we talked about several weeks ago, of the, of the Most High God is that regardless of whatever uh, entity or being might claim to be a God in heaven or in earth, He is the Most High God. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God that is above all other gods, the God that has a claim of authority above all other authority claims. And Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High. He wanted to take that authority. He wanted the kingdom. He wants to be the most high. So we see Lucifer's aspirations here. He, to exalt his throne above the angelic beings, to establish his authority, to ascend to be like the most high. He wants what the most high has. He wants the right to rule. To this end, verse 12 tells us that he was fallen from heaven. And on that day, we find God did not destroy Lucifer. We do not find that Lucifer ceased to exist. Nor did God even bind him, as we see in scriptures, that certain angels are bound in the bottomless pit until the day of judgment. 
But rather, the Bible says that he was fallen from heaven and he was given to roam the earth. So when we see him in Job chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now, I'm not going to defend today. Uh, we had talked about some of the controversies when we, in, the, in the Most High God message about the nature of the divine counsel and the way that people interpret that today. Within the scope of that particular uh, realm of thinking, uh, there is some question marks as to whether Lucifer and Satan and Beelzebub and whether or not these are the same entities or not. I'm not going to get into the weeds. Historically, Orthodox Christian faith has recognized that Satan is the devil and that the devil is the great deceiver, usurper, and father of lies. And that he, we have historically connected him to this one that Isaiah 14 talks about, Lucifer. So I'm going to assume upon that today. I'm not going to defend that today. I'm assuming that Satan and Lucifer are the same being. So the Bible says, and Satan testified himself in Job 1, that he roams to and fro in the earth and he walks up and down in it. So that we glean from Scripture that whatever authority Lucifer had in heaven was stripped from him. And while he still has access to the throne of God, obviously, as he comes before the throne of God here in Job chapter 1, he no longer has authority in heaven. He has fallen from heaven. His primary abode is not in the presence of God, as is the other stars of heaven, but is rather upon the earth. So think with me about that day. We presume very soon after the creation week, Lucifer seeks to challenge God's authority. As we consider the Ezekiel account to this end, he had exalted himself because of his own beauty and his own radiance. And through that, he seeks to exalt himself above the throne of God. He desires to take from God the realm of heaven. He desires to exercise the right to rule over it, right? In Isaiah 14, it describes his desire to ascend into the mount of the congregation. This is the presence of God. This is not describing earth. This is describing the spiritual existence, the spiritual plane, the throne that is heaven. Heaven is the Lord's throne. The earth is his footstool, right? So we're talking about the throne, not the footstool. God denies him this. And instead, he relegates him to the footstool, to the plain of earth. Now, God also rules over earth. But as we look in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find that God's disposition, his, his ruling over earth was not direct. God directly rules over heaven. But over earth, God has chosen something different. Over earth, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, God gave man dominion over the earth. God delegated to humanity authority so that man became the theocratic representative of God and the theocratically delegated uh, um, ruler in that sense of earth. Humanity had the responsibility for the created order as a delegated authority under God. So that in the heavenly realm, we see that God, through creation, had the direct right to rule, and he exercised that rule directly. In the earthly realm, God also had the right to rule by virtue of creation, but he exercised that rule through delegation. He delegated to humanity that authority. 
And what that means is that what Satan could not do in heaven to directly oppose God and to usurp the throne from God and so take the right to rule in heaven, take the right to rule over the mount of the congregation, Satan saw a path to be able to do on earth. If Satan could convince mankind who had been delegated dominion over the earth to follow him as God rather than to follow Jehovah as God, then by taking the crown of God's creation and the one who had had delegated authority and by that authority shifting to Satan, Satan could exercise dominion over the earth. And as we said way back when in Genesis, that is what was happening in the garden. God exercised authority over man and woman by forbidding them to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Satan proposed that they eat of that tree, he came with his own claim of authority. And the question that, had, that, that Adam confronted on that day is, who is in charge? Who is authority? God Jehovah or Satan? Who is God? Satan says, you will not surely die, but the day that you eat thereof, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. There's a truth claim on the table. God says, the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Satan says, the day that you eat thereof, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. There's a competition for the authority of creation. And in that moment, Adam chose to submit himself to Satan's truth claim. And by submitting himself to Satan's truth claim, he submitted everything that was under his authority to said truth claim. We talked a little bit about this back when we were talking about federal headship and seminal headship. Not going to get into that again. So what we believe is on the day that Adam stepped under the authority of Satan and submitted himself to Satan's authority, he brought all of creation with him into that place of authority. So Satan in that moment won for himself a kingdom. He won humanity and thus the created order. So that 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 calls Satan the god of this world. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. So Satan has a measure of delegated authority. He has a kingdom on this earth. The kingdoms of this world operate under the principles of the devil. They operate under the auspices of the devil. They follow those rules. They follow his way of operation. And they have from the beginning. So we know the story of Genesis. Everything that God actually promised came to pass. Adam and Eve died on that day. They were separated from God. They experienced the separation through the shame of their sin. God confronts Adam and Eve. They hide in their shame. God promises a solution. And he says that the solution would be coming where he would send the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent and his heel would be bruised. So the idea being that the seed of the woman would come and he would, in, he, he would accept a measure of damage in himself in order to, to deliver a fatal blow to the serpent. To the one who had now coerced humanity into, well, 
at least coerced Eve, led Adam, Adam was not coerced, Adam chose it, into following him, into his authority. And so God promised that when he sent the seed of the woman, it would undo what Satan has done. And through this, he would perfect humanity. He would reestablish his authority and he would usher in the kingdom that he had always intended. And so that all of history, all of the Bible, is tracing God's kingdom program from Satan's first attempt to overthrow it to the day when Satan is utterly and finally defeated. And in the meantime... Satan is going through a process of attempting to cause God to fail. Because if at any point God fails, if at any point the kingdom does not come about the way God promised it would, then God is not God. And if God is not God, then Satan can ascend and be like the Most High. So history is unfolding in the progression of God's plan to establish His kingdom. And it moves from age to to age with certain climactic moments when Satan or God makes a major move within the con kingdom conflict. And this is how we organize the Bible into various ages, often called within theological circles dispensations, where our unchanging God is working in different ways in response to the choices of men and the extent to which God has revealed himself to man leading to Jesus coming as king. And what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time is to summarize these ages together and how it is that we organize them, going from the innocent creation where there was a perfect kingdom over which God ruled but which had been untested to the end, when God consummates his kingdom and he brings in a perfect kingdom whereby it has been tested and all of those who choose to love and to follow God from all ages are joining him in the rule of his kingdom in perfection. Moving from that perfect creation and in innocence to a perfect creation that has yet to be established, tested and ultimately established by God. So the Bible says that God created an innocent creation at the beginning. It was flawless but it was untested. The end of the sixth day, God looked at everything he had made and it was very good, the Bible says. That means that there was nothing in it that was wrong for his creation was very good, but it was in fact untested. For God to achieve the desire of his kingdom, however, he was not interested in having a creation that simply obeyed him. It would not be hard for God to create a, si a system of things that simply obeyed him. What God was looking for was a kingdom wherein there was a creation that chose to love him. And the fact of the matter is love is a choice. We talked about this in Genesis, uh, early on in Genesis 3. Love is a choice. I can force my children to obey me. I can make them fear me, but they have to choose to love me. I cannot make anyone love me because love, it's not a feeling. Contrary to what, what society might tell you, love is not a feeling. Love is not a whim. Love is not an a, a, a overarching um, uh, a flood of emotions or anything of the sort. Love is a choice. Biblically speaking, love is a choice to do what is best for the object of my love, regardless of self-interest and regardless of circumstance. So God wanted a creation that loved him, not just a creation that served him. 
To this end, God gives that choice. Satan exercises his will against God. He falls along with a portion of the angels. These beings become confirmed in their choice. Satan is uh, now the prince of the power of the air, and he sets up a counterfeit kingdom, an alternate kingdom that exists to prove that he can cause God to fail, and so he can be a better king than God. So Satan is seeking to establish his own kingdom. And what we trace throughout history is God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom, where at various times, Satan makes pushes, the darkness makes a push to establish in a greater way Satan's dominance and his kingdom. Mankind falls for Satan's deceits and promises and so enters into Satan's kingdom. And all of the biblical record is tracing those men and women who have been chosen, who, who, who are in Satan's kingdom, but then choose to be loyal to God's kingdom instead. And how God is going to use those men and women to invite more people into his kingdom And also about how Satan is going to attempt at every juncture to undermine God's kingdom and to cause God to fail. Because again, if Satan can cause God to fail at any point along the way, if Satan can cause one of God's promises to fail, then Satan prevails. But the neat thing about the Bible, and the purpose of the Bible in fact, is that we have the end of the story. We don't just have the beginning, we have the end. And at the end, what we read about, and that's why I can already put it on the timeline, what we read about is a victorious, unopposed, divine kingdom made up only of those in God's creation who have been given the choice and have exercised their will unto God and His kingdom and out of Satan and His kingdom. And so God's reign at the end of all things will be absolute and will be glorious because everything in that created order will have submitted itself willingly to him. So we see this time of innocence. Following that time of innocence, man falls to sin and we find a very different world. Whereas before men rested under the direct authority and the revelation of God, now mankind has, li- has been separated from God. When man is born, he is born into a very different situation. He is born into Satan's kingdom. And we see humanity operating according to the dictates then of Satan's kingdom. God still having revealed himself through his creation. God still having revealed himself through man's conscience. And man is effectively operating by conscience alone. The idea, as this is described in Scripture, when a man operates only by his conscience alone is, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And the model that you're going to notice is this. That within each age that we see, as we organize the Bible into this system, we see God giving mankind more revelation of himself with each subsequent age an added responsibility that comes with that revelation. And at the end of each age, we are going to see a pretty dramatic switch, a failure of some sort, usually by man. And God intervening in some way, shape, or form, God judging in some way, shape, or form, all the while the success or failure of mankind being determined by whether they choose to submit to God's authority and God's kingdom or Satan's authority and Satan's kingdom. So within this time that we would call the time of conscience, This is where we get to Cain and Abel and Seth. The first great challenge to the kingdom of God, as we've mentioned, 
is when God promises that he will bring a seed and that seed is Abel and that seed is destroyed by Cain who has chosen to follow his own path. We, we very easily and, and, and rightly could describe it as he's chosen Satan's kingdom. He's chosen his own way. So Abel is destroyed and God raises up another seed named Seth. Then we see the idea, we trace the sons of God and the daughters of men. I've already talked about the way that I interpret that passage of Scripture. I spent an entire message justifying why it is I believe the way I believe on that. I do not uh, see this as, as uh, dealing with angelic beings, but rather with, because of the way we're tracing the seed, with those who are of the godly seed of Seth and those who are of the ungodly seed of Cain, in this whole time, we are not, we are not stating that, that anybody within that system cannot choose to do right or wrong. But what we are tracing is we are tracing a lineage. And within that lineage, the sons of God marry the daughters of men. There's a mixing of the righteous with the unrighteous, leading to a state where the unrighteous are prevailing, right? Because when the dirty's with the clean, the dirty doesn't get cleaner, the clean gets dirtier. So that by the time of Noah, there are very few righteous left. To this end, God steps into history and he judges the wickedness of mankind with a flood. He destroys all but those who found grace in the eyes of the Lord through their faith in God. And that would be Noah and his family. Eight persons. And through them, God reestablishes the earth. This cataclysmic event giving way to a new functional age in history. Following this time, of the flood, God institutes a new institution. That institution is called government. Government is ordained by God in order to establish justice and punish injustice on the earth. God has called Shem, Ham, and Japheth to spread throughout the earth. From this first generation, however, there was a child that had been drawn to the allure of Satan's kingdom. Because in every generation, every single person has a choice that they are making. The one who had been drawn to Satan's kingdom, who had rejected faith, his name was Canaan. Noah curses Canaan for this evil, and it's through Canaan that Satan's kingdom continues to have its foothold on the earth, even after the flood. At the same time, Noah blesses Shem and his posterity, indicating that it would be through Shem that God would continue his kingdom program to bring about those seed, the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent and who in doing so would establish the righteous kingdom forever. Now, whereas God told these men to spread out across the earth to multiply and replenish the earth, whereas God gave this new institution of government where he said, if any man shed another man's blood, by him shall man's blood be shed, establishing a means by which for collective humanity to govern themselves and to punish evil, we find that government soon corrupted itself. That the institution of government became a means by which to claim power over men rather than to enforce God's justice. And we see that through the influence of a mighty hunter named Nimrod, whose kingdom began at Babel. Government is designed to be a check on human sin, but became a source of, un, uh, of, well, of unified rebellion. So Nimrod forms a kingdom. He organizes humanity to work together, not under righteousness, but rather to challenge God's authority by making themselves a name and building a tower that reaches unto heaven. 
this symbolizing their strength through unity and their intent to cast off the authority of God and to unite under a one-world system. This system would be defined by the things that are in the world, by the darkness of this world, and in that they are defined by the things of this world and the darkness of this world, this system is defined by Satan's philosophy. It's Satan's kingdom. And so again, God hits a divine reset button. He had already promised he would never flood the earth again. He does not destroy mankind, but rather he confuses the languages, establishing multiple cultures that would develop along divergent paths, all the while being unable to communicate with each other, becoming tribal, and so spending more time fighting with each other so they can't fight against God. And so through this separation of minds and powers, mankind would be dramatically hindered in his capacity to unite in a banner for Satan's kingdom against the kingdom of the living God. God continued to be merciful, long-suffering, forbearing. God is not doing all of this because he cannot in an instant claim victory. Let's gain some perspective on what's happening here. Why is it that God would deliver Noah and his family? They found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why is it that God confuses the languages? Why not just crumple up all of humanity, throw it into the waste bin of history, and start over again? The reason why. Why is it that God would allow Satan's kingdom, his kingdom program, his attempt to usurp God's plan, why is it that God would allow that to continue throughout history? Why not simply snuff it out? Well, he's doing this. For two reasons. First, because what God has always wanted is men and women who choose to love Him, which means there must be a choice. Satan is attempting to establish a kingdom for himself and overthrow God. But what God is doing through that is giving each man a choice. And what that means is that God must allow history to play out. Because every man must be allowed to have a choice. So God suffers the evil to be so. God suffers the wickedness to be so. And it is in fact a reflection of God's mercy and God's long-suffering that He allows evil to continue because if He were to snuff out evil, He would have to snuff out all of those who commit evil. And that would be us. So he must allow evil to have its day in order that he may create the environment whereby we can be redeemed. And so government wasn't enough. Government was not enough to establish and enforce God's kingdom principles. It was not enough to establish justice. Government failed. Humanity, his conscience. Conscience failed. Innocence failed. Conscience failed. Government failed. So God institutes another age, an age of promise, a specific time where God identifies a specific people group gathered under a set of specific covenants, covenants which we'll consider again together more next week. This is the age of the patriarchs, where God chooses Abraham and gives him promises. He gave Abraham a national promise in Genesis 12. He says, I will make of thee a great nation. He gives Abraham a personal promise. He says, I will bless thee and make thy name great, and I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee, and through thee then a universal promise. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Within this age, we see several attempts to cause this chosen family to fail. 
I give you a few here this morning. The first opportunity for failure is when Abraham goes down to Egypt and Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's harem. God has a plan through Abraham and through Sarah. And if Sarah is now taken out of Abraham's hands and given to Pharaoh, that thwarts the plan. So God curses Pharaoh and he restores to Abraham his wife. Then Sarah is discouraged by the fact she cannot have a child. And so she encourages her husband to have a child with the handmaid Hagar. Abraham yields this position of faith and he has this child, but this child is not the chosen seed. Abraham says, would to God that that, that Ishmael may, may live before you. And God says, that's not how this works. You are not going to have a child with your handmaid that is the seed. You're going to have a child with your wife that will be the seed. And so Isaac is born. Abraham gets back on the path. They have this child, Isaac, who becomes the child of promise. Isaac marries Rebekah during a famine. He goes into the land of the Philistines and Abimelech takes Rebekah to be his wife. Again, threatening the seed, except God intervenes once again and in a dream tells Abimelech that he needs to restore to this man his wife. And, and Abimelech does so. He submits to God. He restores Rebekah to Isaac. Rebekah has twins named Esau and Jacob. Esau is the elder and the birthright is his by birthright. But Esau rejects that birthright. He is one who is a profane man. And God begins working through Jacob. Jacob steals the blessing. He must flee. We talked about that a little bit last time. He must flee and go to Haran. He flees and he does so. He meets his wives there. He has many children there. But he is now out of the land of promise, which is why Jacob saw that vision of of angels ascending and descending upon the ladder and God promising that he would come back into the land. Jacob comes back into the land and he has his children with him. One of those children is named Joseph. Joseph begins to have dreams and in those dreams he sees the sun and the moon and the stars and 11 stars bowing down to him. And it's recognized that what he is seeing is dreams of him becoming prominent, preeminent in his family. For this, his brothers desire to kill him. Reuben intercedes and they end up just selling him into slavery. So now the preeminent son ends up in Egypt. But that is by God's design. Because this son will be the deliverance of the entire family in a time of famine. The family ends up in Egypt. And as they are there, Joseph takes care of them. And on his deathbed, Jacob makes a prophecy. And he tells Judah, the scepter will never depart from your house. That there is a king coming. And that king is going to come through the line of Judah. Jacob dies. He's buried in the land of promise. After this, there arises a king that does not know Joseph. And the nation is brought into captivity. Thus hangs over the heads of the descendants of God 
of God's chosen men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, certain death through the attrition of slavery in Egypt. If God can cause, or Satan can bring about the death of the children of Israel, the captivity and the enslavement in Egypt, if they can never get back to the land of promise, if the line of Judah is snuffed out in Egypt, Satan wins. Because that's the kingly line. God raises up a man named Moses. Through him, God supernaturally intervenes once again in their most desperate hour and he redeems his kingdom plan by redeeming his people and by bringing them back into the land of promise. Do you see the unity of scripture? What is happening here? Yes, we're tracing history, but what we're tracing is God has made promises and those promises are coming to pass. And those promises are coming past through the seed of the woman that he promised in Genesis 13, uh, Genesis 3.15. And we're tracing that through from generation to generation. From Seth, through Enoch, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah. And so what, what we believe we're seeing here is God doing a work from age to age. Mankind making decisions, God intervening at points of necessity, choosing to reveal more about himself from generation to generation, working through man to bring about his purposes. So God would lead his people out of this captivity and into the land of promise. And he would enter into a new covenant with them. And this was a unique covenant. We're going to talk about it next week. A covenant unlike any other covenant that we find in Scripture between God and man in that it was a conditional covenant. A covenant where man had a duty to God as well as God having a duty to man. So God gives Israel His law. A covenant with the nation. They are commissioned by God to represent Him to the world and to usher in God's kingdom program by ushering in the Messiah. They obey God. He will divinely and supernaturally bless and protect them. And they disobey God. And when they do so, he will divinely and supernaturally curse them. If they persist in their obedience, he will send them into captivity. This is not about, who, this is not about God choosing a nation to be born again. This has nothing to do directly with salvation by grace through faith. As the descendants of Abraham, they were chosen to be a nation through whom all the world would be blessed. God chose them to be the nation through whom this seed would come. This nation through whom Messiah would come. Throughout this time, prophets are preaching and promising that God would send this king to establish this kingdom, to rule over them in righteousness. And this king was called the anointed one. The Hebrew word for that is Messiah. So this Messiah is going to come and Israel is waiting for it and Israel is, is, is expecting it. And the conflict continues for hundreds of years. The nation is threatened by sin and by war and by revolt and by division and by idolatry and by genocide and by obscurity. And as we enter into the New Testament, we are still in what we would consider to be an Old Testament economy. From Malachi to Matthew, God has not spoken through a prophet for 450 years. And then arises a man named John the Baptist. And he comes and he says that he is the one that Malachi spoke of. The prophet that God would raise up to herald the Messiah. The voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And he says he is this man. And then Messiah comes. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. In that he is Messiah, he is the seed of the woman. 
He is the king that is supposed to come. And so Jesus comes with a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, the Jews were very good at hearing the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but they weren't very good at hearing repent. They were quite convinced that the reason why Messiah would come was because they were already good enough. And Jesus came saying, no, the, the thing is, is you're not good enough and you need, to, you need me. And they would not believe it. In opposition to John and to Jesus are the Pharisees. Jesus calls them children of their father, the devil. We read of Satan tempting Jesus, offering him the kingdom by means of Satan's will rather than God's will. Right? Satan says, I will give you all of the kingdoms of this world if you will but worship me. That's the objective. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our God. That's the goal. That's the prophetic objective. Jesus could avoid all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the problems if he would but bow to worship. He could have the kingdoms of this world, but here's the problem. The minute he worships Satan, who's in charge? If God bows to Satan, then Satan has the throne. So Jesus couldn't do it that way. That's what Satan wants. That's what he's been trying for this whole time. Of course, Jesus rejects such a thing. Not but a small remnant of the Jews believe on their Messiah. With the majority rejecting him so much so that they condemn Jesus to death and they execute him upon the cross. This is the event that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the Bible says that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, but that the seed of the woman's heel would be bruised. So he was hung upon a cross, but Satan's attempt to destroy the kingdom by destroying the Messiah backfires absolutely because Jesus did not stay dead. He arose from the dead, and so he bruised the head of the serpent, and Satan was dealt a fatal blow. Satan's greatest power in his kingdom has always been man's love for sin. This would lead to a final separation from God the moment that he died. But now Jesus dies on the cross, and in doing so bears our sin, raises from the dead, and now Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered death and has promised to give all of those who would believe by grace through faith salvation from the power of sin which causes us to love the things of this world. Salvation from the penalty of sin which results in eternal separation from God and someday even salvation from the presence of sin when, all, when death and hell are cast in the lake of fire. And this ushers in another age. It's an age that the Old Testament did not anticipate, did not prophesy of, did not, uh, did not expect. Paul calls it a mystery, hid from ages and from generations, and that mystery is called the church. To this point, God has worked through one nation in the Bible. The physical seed of Abraham, who came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's bloodline to show himself to the world. They would be rightly related to God so that they could show the world how to be rightly related to God. But God would now work through a new group because the nation of Israel had rejected their king. 
the spiritual seed of Abraham. Not the physical seed of Abraham, the spiritual seed of Abraham. Not those who came from Abraham's loins, but those who followed Abraham's legacy of faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. This call of salvation would be open not just unto the Jews, but unto all, Jew and Gentile alike. And the age of the church is very, very different from any other age that we've considered to this point. The age of innocence. Man is innocent, but he's also in unconfirmed holiness, but he fails. The age of the conscience. Man has this conscience directing him unto God, but he fails. The age of government. Government fails. The age of the promises. They fail. The age of the law. It failed. It could not bring about righteousness. Righteousness could not be brought about through the law. And when the king came to the people that were under the law, they killed him. But see, the church age is very different. And the reason why it's different is because we are the age after Jesus Christ already purchased the victory. We are the first age where we as God's people are already victorious over Satan's kingdom. The church is not struggling for victory over Satan's kingdom as others did. The church is a trophy of God's victory that has already taken place. Jesus' death on the cross was the killing blow to Satan's kingdom. Satan is a dead man walking. He is a defeated foe. He is still there. He is still operating because people are still being born into his kingdom. And they still must be redeemed from said kingdom. Every time we meet here on Sunday, however, every time we fellowship together around the Lord's table, as we will do next week in the evening service, we are sounding a victory cry of a kingdom which is already victorious. We are simply waiting for the citizens to be gathered together so that the king will come and claim the kingdom for himself. So in this time, we are commissioned to spread throughout the world, calling men and women out of darkness and into this light. We are the ambassadors for this already victorious yet future kingdom, already secured, already assured. We're simply waiting for the king to come. We, through the spirit of God, are commissioned with holding evil at bay. We, through the spirit of God, are commissioned to call sinners out of darkness and into light. We, through the spirit of God, represent the principles of the kingdom of light before the face of the children of the kingdom of darkness. Those whose minds are blinded by the God of this world. We are here to pull as many away from Satan's kingdom as possible before the inevitable day when Satan's kingdom and all who love it and all who follow it will be utterly destroyed. And this is why, though you are already a child of the kingdom, unlike every other age where the kingdom had not yet been purchased, had not yet been established, where, where the, the reality of God's people was a struggle against the kingdom of Satan and its push and its power and its desire to, to be victorious, the kingdom of Satan has failed. Christ has already won. And yet we are still here. And this is why the manner in which we live our lives, Christian, matters. Whenever we as Christians live under the principles of Satan's kingdom, whenever we assume the principles of the enemy... Rebellion, lies, anger, deceit, sexual uncleanness, the list, right? When we allow these things into our homes, into our lives, into our testimony, 
what we are doing is we are laying down the mantle of the kingdom of God and we're picking up the mantle of the truth claims in the kingdom of Satan. We are representing the wrong kingdom. And Satan's effects upon... The effects of Satan's kingdom upon culture are pervasive. But unfortunately, they can find their way into our lives as well. The easiest way to see the effects of Satan's kingdom upon culture is to look at culture itself. We know that the arts have been captured by Satan for many generations now. For many generations, the arts have had one mission, break down the barriers of truth and morality and culture. So when that musician sings about me, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to get what I deserve. This is the satanic philosophy of self-love. This is actually what Satan told Eve in the garden. You can be as gods, knowing good and evil. When that movie shows that rebellious child and in the end that rebellious child was right all along and his silly authorities were wrong, this is the satanic philosophy of rebellion. This is what Satan duped Eve into to follow in the garden. So pastor, are you telling me then that Satan is behind every rock? Satan is behind everything. Well, no. I mean, movie producers are behind movies. Music producers are behind music. These people aren't necessarily doing what they're doing as an homage to Satan. They didn't necessarily get a dream one night where Satan came to them and said, write this piece of music or write that movie. Sometimes in the music industry that happens <laughs> by their own testimony, but it's not, 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 not all the time. But what I'm telling you is that everybody is operating under a certain philosophy. We are all loyal to some kingdom, to some authority, and it just so happens that the kingdoms of this world right now are under the God of this world. And we should fully expect the world to love the message of the kingdom under which they are because this is Satan's realm. But God forbid that the principles of Satan's kingdom should come into his church because we are ambassadors of God's kingdom. We are those who are already born into God's kingdom by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life into a different kingdom. And so we reject the, uh, the, the ideology, uh, ideologies and the idolatries of Satan's kingdom. Within culture today, the lines are particularly drawn they're particularly drawn around particular philosophies and ideologies. And they're lines which the church is deciding, what are we going to do with these things? The church decides, what are we going to do with abortion? Satan has always loved the destruction of the innocent, namely because God has always been an advocate for the innocent. It's a hallmark of Satan's kingdom from the beginning. And the church has to decide. Are we going to stand for God's kingdom or are we going to capitulate to the ideologies of Satan's kingdom? Here's a tremendous push for the last 100 years as it relates to feminism. However, as we see the ideology of feminism, it has nothing to do with women being seen as equals in society and everything to do with women being seen as the same in society. But God did not make men and women the same. 
He made them equal, but different. Complementary, but not interchangeable. More than this, God has designed in the family and in the church and in society that man have headship over the woman. This is not because women are inferior. It is because God has particularly fitted man for that role. Because God has designed things to be so. Modern feminism exists to break down the distinctions between the genders and to encourage women to rebel against God's design for them, for their family, and for society. These women are not fighting for women. They are fighting against God's kingdom. They are fighting for Satan's kingdom. They are fighting to rebel against God's design. The church is trying to decide today, what are we going to do with this idea of feminism? Are they fighting for something noble or have they instead been duped into fighting for the philosophy of Satan's kingdom? The same with sodomy and transgenderism as it presents itself in our society today. Sodomy and transgenderism, according to Romans chapter 1, take place in any culture where rebellion against God is so strong that the people begin to reject even the most basic elements of God's design. The fact that men and women belong together is so fundamentally obvious that humanity cannot continue without it being in place. The fact that men, and, men are men and women are women is so fundamentally obvious that it is reflected in God's created order very down, all the way down to the chromosomal level of the human body. But mankind's rebellion against God, rooted in this thing going all the way back to Satan's proposition to Adam and Eve in the garden, ye shall be as gods, knowing good, as evil, and knowing good and evil. God has said this thing, but you can actualize your own truth and your own existence, and you can take for yourself authority to even be able to redefine reality itself. Mankind's rebellion against God can become so strong that it even abhors the obvious testimony of design rooted in the basic facts of life. Because even the very fact of man and a woman getting married or the very reality that a man is a man and a woman is a woman testifies to the reality of a creator who has designed things to be in a certain way. It testifies to an authority over mankind. So mankind says, let us cast off even the vestiges of reality that testify to authority. That men and women belong together reflects design. And if it reflects design, then there must be a designer. But if I can get rid of the design, then maybe I can get rid of the designer too. That's Satan's kingdom at work. Satan's tactics all the way back to Adam and Eve. Now, let's be clear about this. The, the things that I have spoken of, the most visible manifestations of these things, the reason why I speak to them is because these are the battle lines of culture and the church is deciding in this day and age what we are going to do with these ideologies. These are sins among many other sins. Some people struggle with covetousness. Some people struggle with lust. Some people struggle with lying. Some people struggle with homosexuality. As I would not reject the liar, as the church would not reject the liar, the church would not reject the coveter, the church would not reject the, the man struggling with lust, and the church would not reject the homosexual or the transgender person. However, 
I also would not tell a person struggling with any particular sin that because it's their tendency, I would not tell the liar that it, because it's their tendency to lie, it's okay. Because it's not okay. Just because it's their tendency, just because it's their propensity, that doesn't mean it's right. But rather, like with all sin, that God can save them, redeem them, deliver them, and bring them to a place of rightness with God. Why has this become controversial in the church? Well, because the church is getting confused. The church is trying to figure out whether or not they can agree with culture and still shine a light. Now, there was a time in this country where culture was Christianized. And the church and culture could walk hand in hand. And as culture diverges from the church, the church is having a hard time saying, we now have to become counter-cultural. They're battlegrounds of our age, Christian. And while it should not in any way surprise us as the church that a culture under the direct influence of the kingdom of Satan would throw itself into the philosophies of Satan, the problem is when the church, the representative of the kingdom of God, begins to hold loyalty and love for the principles of the culture, the kingdom of Satan, above that of God. When the church sacrifices truth on the altar of some pragmatic, maybe even well-meaning attempt to avoid alienating those whose minds have been blinded by the God of this world, and in their well-meaning attempts they fail to advocate for the kingdom of God, they are failing at their purpose. We are failing at our purpose. And it is for this reason that we ought to be thoughtful. We ought to be careful. What we do, what we support, how we relate ourselves to the things in this world. Because we are representatives of a kingdom and a king. And it is not the kingdom or the king of this world, but of the one that God has already established in history. The kingdom that he has promised. And so God is doing a work. And the church is a part of the work for this time. But that's not the end. There's coming a time where God will reinitiate his work through Israel because he had promised them a king. And so he will reinitiate a seven-year time with Israel where he will be focused again on them. I'm going to go through this briefly. This is end times material. These seven years that are often called the time of tribulation. This will be Satan's last stand and his final attempt to destroy God's kingdom. He mercilessly seeks to destroy all of Israel so that God cannot give them the kingdom. He empowers a man to forge a world empire using all of the capacity and influence of mankind to unite itself in opposition against the Almighty God. Through this, God chastens Israel to himself. Through this chastening, he convinces them of, his, uh, of Jesus' identity as Messiah. They receive him as their Messiah. And so all Israel will be saved, as Romans chapter 11 assures us. Jesus then returns and destroys the enemies of God. And this leads us to the final age before the, the system is complete. And that is the age of the millennium. A thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. 
In this 1,000 years, Satan is chained in the bottomless pit, unable to tempt and unable to deceive. The curse is lifted from off of the earth. Jesus rules from Jerusalem upon the earth with a rod of iron. The resurrected faithful rule with Christ. The nations of those who are yet mortal will, be, will obey implicitly, yet, the, yet still having a sin nature. But with every offense being dealt with swiftly and decisively, the created order will not kill, will not maim, will not destroy. All will be subservient to Christ, the kingdom on earth. But because there are still mortal men and women, there's still a choice to be made. And the Bible says at the end of this 1,000 years, God will release Satan from his captivity for a brief time. Satan will go about to deceive the nations and he will be successful in doing so, proving once and for all that it is not man's environment that causes him to do wrong. It is not the devil that made him do it. The devil had been chained for 1,000 years. People had been living in a paradise where there was no death or sorrow for 1,000 years. Uh, Those that say, well, if only Jesus would come and show us himself in person, then we would believe. Yet Jesus has been ruling and reigning for 1,000 years in the flesh. And all of those excuses are gone. And yet the minute that Satan comes back, and he proposes once again his kingdom that he may rule and reign himself again, many people on this earth within the kingdoms of this world are gladly eager to cast off God in order to follow Satan, proving once and for all that the problem with humanity is right here. It's not poverty. It's not environment. It's not education. It's not the devil. It is your own sinful heart. Jesus Christ will destroy them with the word of his mouth and cast all of those who had rebelled against him into the lake of fire with Satan. Satan's kingdom thus will be destroyed and he will be eternally judged in the place that was intended for him and for him alone, that is the lake of fire, along with all who follow him and his philosophy. And all of those throughout history and every age who seeing the choice between God's kingdom God's authority and Satan's kingdom and his authority chose to love and to trust the unseen God in faith. All those who, having chosen between the two kingdoms, chose to love God will rejoice for him for all eternity in his perfect kingdom in the eternal state. And at this time, that perfect kingdom which God created in innocence many, many years before would now be a perfect kingdom created in holiness. All to the glory of God. A God who not only created it, but then when it rebelled against him, redeemed his people back to himself. Won that kingdom at the cost of his own life for no other reason than that he loved us and he wanted us to spend an eternity with him. And I give you all of this today because as we step into Genesis 15, once again, you need to know that it is this system of biblical organization through which I see the Bible. At this point in Genesis 1 through 14, the deeper distinctions of this interpretive method within church history have not yet reared their heads. But when at once we approach God's dealings with Abraham and the promises that he makes to Abraham in Genesis 15 and following, the interpretive method that we choose is no longer on the sidelines. To that end, what some of you will hear me preach will be somewhat different than what you've heard out of other Bible teachers. And when this happens, you're tempted to believe that one man cares about the Bible and truth and the other one doesn't. May I encourage you to be careful about such simple assumptions. 
Sometimes this is true. But more often, we just come at the Bible from a different perspective. And my presentation of that perspective isn't quite over yet. As I said, we've still got to talk about the covenants over the next couple weeks. But may our time together today renew in our hearts both a determination and a hope. A determination that we, as those who are part of the kingdom of God, would represent God's kingdom properly on earth would stand even against the tide of culture as they seek to represent the principles of Satan and would not allow those principles to overwhelm our manner of thinking, but that we would stay rooted and grounded in the truths of God's Word. But may it also bring us hope. Because anytime we study the whole dynamic of what God is doing from beginning to end, what we remember is that God has already established the end that we already have in prophecy. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdom of our God. That He has already won the victory. That on the day of Jesus' birth, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That on the day that Jesus hung on the cross, after He had borne our sin, He cried out, It is finished. That Satan is a defeated foe. That Satan is a dead man walking. And that we as the church are not here in order to defeat Satan. He is already defeated. We are here to live in the victory that has already been purchased and to call others out of that darkness and into our marvelous light. To represent the kingdom on this earth until Christ comes to bring that kingdom in its time. And he will. It's inevitable. It's purchased. It's going to happen. We've been given the end of the story. History in this broad way is already written. And not only does God win, but so too do all of those who love His appearing. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.